Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This Kellen and Alex show was recorded in May of 2020. This is a very special edition. We're talking the theology of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower who is a doctor of the church. She was a Carmelite nun in the late 1800s, only lived to be, I think, 23 or 24. She wrote one major book, The Story of a Soul, and she's a doctor of the church, and for really good reason. We get into her theology. It's just so clear and personal. Uh, the love that she has for Jesus just it's, it shines through everything she says. The big thing that really stood out to me and we get into is uh, often she's called the little flower for one of the things she talks about in her her work that she's she just wants to be a little flower in God's great garden of souls. But the one story that I really liked was Therese as the little ball. Uh, and, and we get into that story as well that Christ can sometimes bring her to her heart, his heart rather, throw her against the wall, sometimes, uh, you know, pierce her to see what's inside. She just has such great theology and such a good way of just conveying, you know, her her love for Christ and her love for the church. And uh, so we get into all of that and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this edition of The Kellen and Alex Show. Some real madness. You listen to The Kellen and Alex Show and you listen to what they have to say on the good old theological subjects. <laughs> and we're we are tackling one of the giants today. One of the giants. Probably if not like at least in modern times. I mean Wikipedia says besides St. Francis, St. Therese of Lisieux, which we'll be talking about tonight, is the most well-known, most popular saint in the church today. That people wow. know of. That's pretty wild, right? That's beating out well, That's- I don't know if that counts like St. Paul and St. Peter. You know, like, what does that count? But most well-known popular saint since apostolic times. So I guess that's excluding just the saints. Insane. Yeah, Dude, that's just insane. Francis Therese of Lisieux, right? Mm. So before I get into flower. the little flower, that's right. Before I get into a little bit of her introduction. So Kellen, uh, I recently finished The Story of a Soul, her autobiography, I'm no St. Therese expert, by the way. This is basically this and uh, what Pope John Paul II wrote uh, declaring her a doctor of the church. That's what I know of her. So I'm no expert in St. Therese. This is from a amateur little flower follower. Um, but yeah, what, what do you know of her as someone who hasn't read the autobiography just generally? Well, you know, oh, we disconnected already. <laughs> Well, we're going to have to bear with Kellen and his, we'll offer up some sufferings uh, for Kellen's connection. Uh, but yeah, guys in chat, let me know what you, have you read the autobiography or, uh, you know, how are you familiar with St. Therese? Uh, so for, for those who are not as familiar with St. Therese, um, she was a Carmelite sister in the late 1800s um, and she entered uh, the convent her older sisters were part of the convent as well. And um, while she was there, she was uh, commanded under obedience to write an autobiography uh, about her life, which she compiled into the story of the soul. And it's actually written in three parts, her autobiography. Um, The first one was written for Mother Agnes of Jesus. The second manuscript was written for another uh, superior. Um, She didn't want to write about her life or about her, you know, her experiences with Christ. Um, she was commanded to, cause she, you know, didn't want to, she thought it was weird for a nun to be writing, 
positively about her life. So, um, but anyway, she wrote it and, um, after she died, she died really young. She died, I think she was 25 years old of tuberculosis. And it was only, uh, it wasn't much longer after, it was, I think about 30 years, 20 to 30 years later, she was beatified and canonized. Um, at least she was canonized by Pius the 11th, um, Pius the 11th or Pius the 10th. Um, Ignorant Lad says all alone. No, I'm not all alone. Kellen's connections disconnected him. So I'm giving an introduction for, for St. Therese, Mr. Ladd. Uh, good to see you guys here. Uh, yeah, so she wrote her autobiography um, and it's three manuscripts. And you can really tell when you read through it uh, that she sat down and she wrote and she didn't go back and think, you know, did I polish it? Did I make all the words correctly? It's just literally her sitting down and writing about her life. And this is this, you know, just this book, her autobiography is what made her a doctor of the church, which is quite a staggering, um, <laughs> quite a staggering achievement that, you know, if you look at Augustine, right, you got city of God, you got, you know, volumes and volumes of his writings, his letters and all the profundity he wrote. Of course, he's a universal doctor of the church, one of the most important. And Therese has been recognized um, as a doctor of the church. And I just want to read a little bit from um, her, pro the proclamation, the apostolic letter, making her a doctor of the church. Uh, Kellen's coming back in. Let's get him back in. Hopefully it'll be back in. Um, bing bong. Welcome back. So I was just, I'm sorry. no, you're good. You're good. I was just telling her, I, I was just introducing St. Therese a little bit. Um, just the fact that her autobiography, uh, literally, she just was commanded to write about her life. She didn't want to write about her life, but she was commanded to. And um, she wrote it in three parts in three different occasions. And um, you can tell that she just sat down and wrote it. And it was just pure from from the heart, you know, um, where her spiritual journey and how she came. Um, and this one book, right? made her a doctor of the church. Um, wow. the, this like, I mean, it's super short. This season, this has a prologue and an epilogue as well. So that aren't written by her and it's 150 pages, maybe, um, you know, and you compare like St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas and like all they wrote and everything else. And Therese is in the company as a doctor of the universal church. It's quite a staggering, you know, like what's within this 150 pages that makes her up there with Augustine and Aquinas and just these greats, you know, any thoughts well, about that right off the bat, I guess. I mean, you know, when she was younger, she, something I read up earlier was she, uh, she suffered from like insomnia and like extreme hallucinations. And, and she she just had, she said that this is just literally hell for me. Like, this is terrible. Why am I suffering this much when I'm this young? I'm, I'm, I'm literally feel like. A Doesn't she get sent to like a, a convent or something? Yeah. So she enters the right. convent in Carmel, um, or, or, the convent of Carmel in Lazoo. Um, and her older sisters were also there and had professed vows and had become like full nuns there. And uh, she actually wanted to, she wanted, she knew like for the longest time that she wanted to be a nun. 
And so, and she was really young when she was like 14 or 15, she said, I'm ready. It's time to enter as a sister. And the superiors were like, no. And so she went to the bishop and said, hey, bishop, I know I'm 15. I'm called to enter the convent. And he's like, I don't know. You're supposed to listen to your superiors. They don't think it's time yet. And then she she approached her dad about it too and, and asked her dad like, hey, support me. I think I have a calling to this. And her dad um, was supportive and said, yeah, I think I think you do. And his, her dad said, I'm making a pilgrimage to Rome. And if the bishop doesn't let us, we're going to bring it to the Pope and see if he'll let us let Therese enter to the convent at 15. So Therese and her father travel all the way to Rome. This is in the late 1800s. They didn't like fly there. Um, and Therese had an audience with Pope Leo XIII and got to meet Pope Leo XIII. And uh, this was back in the day when, like, if you made a pilgrimage to Rome, like, the Pope would have an audience with all the pilgrims, right? And uh, so Therese and the whole group, they come in, and they're only supposed to just go up, ask for a blessing, and then go. And they're not supposed to, like, have a conversation with the Pope. She went right up to the Pope and then told him, you know, I'm trying to enter the convent at 15. And uh, the Pope's like, okay. (laughs) And the Pope, Pope Leo just says like, are you disconnecting again? Oof. Oh no, you're there. You're there. So Leo, all right, cool. Leo the 13th was like, okay, your superior said no at the moment. So you should, if it's God's will that you should enter, then he'll see you through. Is basically what Pope Leo, Leo said. And so Therese goes back and, you know, she's kind of disappointed because she thought the Pope would just be like override, like inter Carmel right away. Um, and she waited another year and. She thought she was like, I'm going to die. This is it. I can't enter. She's 15 years old, you know? It's just wild. Well, anyways, that Christmas, the bishop and the superior both say, okay, you can enter as a novice. And she enters at 16. Wow. And uh, yeah, just like, it's so cool because like she was so certain that it was time. She went all the way to Rome and to the Pope and said, it's time. (laughs) Such faith, such faith she had, man. I mean, she... She just, she knew that it was her calling and, and, you know, the hierarchy was so, they were so stunned because she's so young and she's not really taking the advice of her superiors. And so everybody's thinking she's just, she's too young. She can't do this. And when she entered, she knew that she was going to live a life of spiritual torment. I mean, Hmm. that's basically the route that she took and she, and she knew it. And it's just a, you know, a doctor of the church. That's, that is saying something. I mean, and so that, you know, the fact that she was just able, like her whole life story of, you know, a soul being saved and, you know, going through pain and torment and torture. I mean, she was just her entire life. That was her story. That's how it was written. And it's amazing to me that she's her, her perseverance is the thing that just blows my mind. Yeah. Clearly you read it in that book. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of like the suffering she had, like her mother, I believe her mother either died when she was really young. Yeah, that's right. Died when she was like, like really, really young. Her mother died. And she, it was original. I think there were nine kids in total and then only five or four of them made it to adulthood. Um, So a lot of their family, some of their family died young. Their mother obviously died um, when she was young as well. And it was just her, her father. And, um, 
both of her parents are actually canonized, canonized saints as well, which is pretty amazing. Um, Zelly and I forget their other name. Uh, Zelly and anyways, you guys in chat can let me know. Um, but yeah, both of her parents are saints and her father was just a really saintly man as well. Like he, you know, I think it was three or four of his daughters all entered the convent in Carmel in Lazoo, which is, you know, and, um, he was totally supportive of them and, and offered, there's a, there's a line where he offers, um, you know, he's like, if there was anything better, I could have given the Lord, I would have done it. And, and now I've given, um, yeah, yeah, here's what his, um, her father said when, uh, she enters the seminary. Overjoyed, he had replied in his incomparable way, we must go once to the blessed sacrament and thank our Lord for the graces he has showered upon our family and for the honor he has done us in choosing his brides from my house. For it is indeed a great honor. There we go. It is indeed a great honor that he should ask me for my children. If I had anything better, I would not hesitate to offer it to him. I mean, just... And then Therese puts anything better he had himself. <clears throat> and uh and then says you know obviously the offering of of himself so not only saint therese but um her father just a very 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 saintly man and became a saint offering all of his daughters and and um you know thanking the lord that he could offer his daughters to go to to carmel kellen you there yeah i'm here <laughs> i was just i was just um <clears throat> talking about therese's father and he was a really saintly man and, you know, him offering his, his daughters to, uh, to the convent and being very faithful. And, um, and I believe, yes. Okay. So uh, Teresa's father died, um, before she died. So he, I think he, I can't remember what he died of, but he was getting a little bit older and, um, you know, Therese died when she was 25, like super young. And she talks about it in her autobiography that she knew she had a, she thought that she was going to die young. Um, she kind of knew it. And she talks about it in different points in her, her autobiography. And you're like, wow, I, like, how did she know this, that she was going to die young like this? She died of tuberculosis at 25. And she talks about like how she knew that God would gather this little flower in the, the first blossom of its life. So she had just been like blossoming in, in the convent and she knew that Christ was going to um, call her to himself early on in her life, that she wasn't going to live a long, a long life, you know? And you think like in imitation of Christ, Christ only lived 33 years. So eight years longer than Therese. And, um, you know, if you think in terms of life, like 33, like you're right at the height of your powers, your intellectual powers, your physical powers. And, um, you know, Christ offered his, his life, not at the end of his life, but at like the peak of his life. And, uh, there's something very interesting with like saints who die young, you know, uh, whether they're martyred or whether, like, I don't know if you know, Alo Aloysius Gonzaga, um, but he, he was a Jesuit and he died when he was like 17 or 18 or something like that. And he was, you know, free from mortal sin and, uh, a really, really holy saint. Um, Maria Goretti Mola, um, other saints like Grady Mola, or maybe I'm thinking of another one, but anyways, uh, yeah, 
Thoughts on that? 25 years old. Man, I mean, I've always taken an interest in, you know, saints that have died young because there, it just, there seems to be something different about it. You know, it, it it seems like it makes their lives like more meaningful and more impacted, impactful. Um, And so when I was just reading up on her, I was thinking, you know, all of this, uh, all of this that she went through, she didn't go over all of this in like 80 years. I mean, she went through all of this in 25 years, really right at the peak of her life. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking to myself, that is, you think that's a long time, 25 years, but everything that she went through, it's like it happened day by day. And for her to, you know, the, the, uh, what's the word, the amount of faith that she had in her life and faith in God that she had in such that small time. I mean, it's just, it blows my mind that, she had such a devout and amazing faith and for to live not that long and to suffer from hallucinations, you know, insomnia, uh, fevers, just all sorts of dreadful things that no person wants to go through. And she suffered it, suffered all the time from it. So I just, it, there's always something amazing to me about those saints that die young. It just, it seems to make their life to put such a shock factor out there to other, you know, maybe people that aren't even Catholic, you know, people that aren't Catholic, it's not like they don't a lot. Most of them like don't recognize the saints. Like they know, like there's things, there are people called saints, you know what I'm saying? And so um, I was listening to this, uh, this tape and there was this, I believe Presbyterian lady and she was a teacher at a school or something. Mm -hmm. And this Catholic woman who was giving the talk went to her and they were just talking about like, you know, what the Presbyterians believe and then like what the Catholics believe. Um, And so she was saying, man, the Presbyterian lady said, or was she Methodist? I don't know. She said, "Um, it's amazing. The one thing that I admire about the Catholic faith, the most amazing thing that I've ever seen is that. It, I, she said, I believe it's the one true faith. And you know why is because all the saints that have come and gone, you guys have been the most battle tested out of any, any of them. Yeah, for you real. guys have had the most, you guys have had the most saints that have lived through absolute hell. And you guys have conquered that. And Teresa Lusu example right there, man, put it in perspective, tested. dude. Like, okay. 25 year old, French nun from a kind of fairly poor background in the middle of nowhere in France and like popes and, you know, Catholics all over the world acclaim her as like one of their greatest treasures ever, you know, you know, like people today who who are the great heroes of, you know, American society today. And it's like, okay, well, you know, some of these multi-billionaires who are like on the cutting edge or like Elon Musk or Trump or whoever, you know. But like, who does the church say is like the heights of being a Catholic? A unknown French nun who wrote a book about her life from in the middle of nowhere in France. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just, it's so, and died at 25 and really did nothing of, let's say, worldly. She didn't like found a hundred monasteries or convert an entire nation you know, or anything like that. She just wrote her books and 
it's just it's crazy. You know what I mean? Um, Kellen, you still there? So it's just not disconnected. It maybe is. Regardless, I don't want to keep you guys in suspense. We're talking theology, so we have to like get into what she actually says. Um, so this is kind of how she starts um, her book. I'm just going to give you a, a little bit of quote. For a long time, I had wondered why God had preferences, why he did not give the same degree of grace to everyone. I was rather surprised that he should pour out such extraordinary graces on great sinners like St. Paul, St. Augustine, and so many others, forcing his grace on them, so to speak. I was rather surprised when reading the lives of the saints to find our Lord treating certain privileged souls with the greatest tenderness from the cradle to the grave, removing all obstacles from their upward path to him. Also, I wondered why so many poor savages die without even hearing the Lord's name. Jesus chose to enlighten me on this mystery. So she's talking about the fact that like you have great saints like St. Augustine, St. Paul, who receive these great graces uh, after being sinners. You have others who are like, you know, the pagans, the savages who never hear the name of Christ, never get to receive these graces. Um, Like, why is it that you have this great distinction on why God gives preferences? Why does God have preferences? Why does he prefer this? Why does he prefer that? Kellen, you there? Yep. So I'm just reading. So I didn't want to keep our our 200 viewers in suspense. We're talking actual theology. So I wanted to quote exactly from Therese and then talk about it a little bit. Um, She basically, she starts off by saying, um, you know, for a long time, I wondered why God had preferences, why he did not give the same degree of grace to everyone. So she's wondering about the question of like, why do you have people like St. Paul, St. Augustine, who received so many graces and such great saints? You have other people who are just pagans. They never even hear the name of Christ. They never get to, you know, receive these graces. Um, Like, why does our Lord, and she says, treat certain privileged souls with the greatest tenderness from the cradle to the grave, removing all obstacles from their upward path to him. So she's, she's wondering, like, this is how she starts her autobiography, like wondering about, you know, why does God have preferences in this way? Jesus chose to enlighten me on this mystery. He opened the book of nature before me, and I saw that every flower he has created has a beauty of its own, that the splendor of the rose and the lily's whiteness do not deprive the violet of its scent, nor make less ravishing the daisy's charm. I saw that if every little flower wished to be a rose, nature would lose her spring adornments, and the field would no longer be enameled with their varied flowers. So it is in the world of souls, the living garden of the Lord. It pleases him to create great saints who may be compared to the lilies of the rose, but he has also created little ones who must be content to be daisies or violets, nestling at his feet to delight his eyes when he should choose to look at them. The happier they are to be as he wills, the more perfect they are. Wow. That's interesting. First thoughts? I don't really know what to make of that. That's like, it's like God, it's like picking and choosing almost. That's what it feels like. I mean, she's saying that God is, let's say, picking and choosing in the sense of like, some get to be made into roses, others into violets, others into daisies. And just because you're not a, you know, if every flower were a rose in the garden of souls, meaning if everyone was as great as St. Paul, um, the variation of, uh, you know, of, of human, um, you know, shining forth of divine love 
would it wouldn't be as beautiful. It would just be static. Everything would be equal and equally boring. You could say in one regard, it it doesn't have the varied nature of like your unique soul imit you know uh, taking in the divine love and then giving it back to God, and um, that's the reason why. Let's say someone like Saint Augustine receives all these great great graces. And let's say I don't receive the same great graces, but I receive the graces that I need for my particular life that God has designed for mine. And um, I love the image that she has of like, you know, if every little flower wished to be a rose, nature would lose her spring adornments. Um, He has also created little ones who must be content to be daisies or violets nestling at his feet to delight his eyes when he should choose to look at them. The happier they are to be as he wills, the more perfect they are. So the more happy you are to be, you know, the, the, the fullness of you in Christ and in grace, the more happy you are and, you know, content you are with being the greatest you, you are meant to be, the more happier you will be in, you know, showing forth that divine love. I mean, and she calls herself the little one over and over again, right? She's the little flower. She, she's not, she has a great desire to be a saint, um, but she wishes to be, she doesn't want to be beyond what, you know, beyond what's able for her to be. It's, it's, yeah. Thoughts on that? It's like a, you know, and it's so true. I mean, she was so humble and, and, you know, calling herself the little flower. I mean, and just, but, you know, even in the most humble people, the, the graces are just obviously seen. I mean, like you said, uh, you know, each person is given a duty on this earth and God will provide us with the necessary graces. And, you know, it's not, we don't need to have these, all these, you know, some people are meant to do different things than others. And that might, you know, be a way bigger challenge for someone else. And it, you might be doing something way bigger and God will provide those graces to you because he loves you and he knows the path that you're going on. He knows the obstacles that you're going to come up against. And God gives us those graces so that we can understand who we are and how we get through problems. I mean, St. Therese, she, like I said, in her early life, I mean, she was going through hallucinations, insomnia. Like she was just, she felt like she was living in hell and she was given graces to persevere through that. I mean, she was given graces of perseverance like no other. Might be cutting out a little bit. Um... But yeah, she she was given great graces in her recognizing that she was she has she uh, she has this duality in her in her autobiography where she talks about wanting having a great desire to be a saint. She has just an she has a great desire to be a saint and she says she knows that this desire can't be wrong because God is, you know, God wouldn't instill this desire in her um, unless it was something that he that he could actually make happen with her. And she also says, I think I will be a great saint one day. But at the same time, she has, on the other hand, that she is the little flower. And she recognizes that whatever good she you know thinks she's doing or whatever, it really is Christ. It really is the graces that make her what she is. And she has this really amazing section where she talks about... Um, like why, uh, why she's been given 
Let's get Kellen back in here. Like, why was Therese given the graces that she should enter Carmel versus um, Kellen? Just to pick up where you were, um, I she has this section. You know, we're we're obviously now looking retroactively. Like, she was given immense graces, right? And she has this desire to become a great saint. Um, but at the time she has this, I was talking about duality of like, she has this desire to be a, a great saint. And she also recognizes that whatever she's doing, it's the graces of Christ that are really doing it. It's not her own merits. She has this, uh, this line in her third manuscript where she talks about, um, the elevator had like just become invented slash popularized in Europe at the time that Therese was writing. And she got to see an elevator one time. And she said, um, my spirituality, like she's not spirituality. She said, um, I wish to, you know, enter the elevator to Christ <laughs> to it, it's not me doing any work, you know, walking up the stairs to Christ. It's, it's literally trusting in him and he raising me up. There's no effort on my part, except for just to push the button. Basically. It's just such it's a so cool true. image. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, literally like, like I was saying, by the way, before we go any further, I'm sorry, Twitch viewers and everybody. From now on, I'm not going to do the Kellen Alex show in my house. I'm going to go somewhere else, like in my parents' <laughs> office, because my internet sucks here. It's, I apologize. it's fine. It's fine. I, He's gone forever. <laughs> Look, I'm, we, I'm sorry, but I don't want to keep busting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, and I'm probably going to die five more times. And I apologize. I believe around 720 because I'm. I, I'm sorry, guys. Look, you're good. You don't have to apologize. I, we love you in your own little way. All right. You know, you're our little flower with terrible internet connection. And, it's okay. And, you know, I feel bad because I have like a terrible stomach ache right now. So I'm trying to keep it all together. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, internet connection is going to be great from now on, guys. Just after tonight, Just it's going to be great. I'm going to be going somewhere else and it's going to work fine. I'm sorry. My internet really does suck out here. So you're good, brother. You're good. Trying to keep by the way, Twitch chat, we are watching the Twitch chat. So if you guys got stuff to say, please put it there. We're watching it. Um, I just wanted to, to this next section talking about like grace and, you know, there's that God gives very different graces um, to different people and that we shouldn't be, um, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, God is wanting to perfect you in his graces in your little way, not trying to be great on your own merits, but trusting in God. We talked about the elevator of God like the elevator of Christ, that he's the one that's lifting you up and it's not on your own merits. And she, uh, she talks about, um, she was wondering, you know, why God had mercy on her. And, um, she gives this analogy. She says, suppose the son of a skillful doc, she, she's talking about, I should preface it by saying she's talking about, um, like how does, let's say she never, she never committed a mortal sin. So her spiritual, her confessor figured out she never committed a mortal sin. And, um, she talks about like, she, she talks about Mary Magdalene a lot and tries to imitate Mary Magdalene. And obviously Mary Magdalene lived a sinful life before she, you know, became converted and, and received Christ. And she had a great love for Christ. But Therese is wondering like, okay, I haven't done any great sins. And Jesus says like, he who has sinned much loves much or is forgiven much loves much. Right. So if you've sinned a lot and you've been forgiven that you love a lot, 
So she's wondering like, do I love with that same type of love? And she makes an analogy. She says, suppose the son of a skillful doctor falls over a stone lying in his path and breaks a limb. His father hurries to help him and dresses his wound so skillfully that it heals completely. Naturally, he is quite right to love such a father and will be most grateful to him. So you have a father who's a doctor, his son trips over the stone and gets hurt. The father rushes over and then helps him. But supposing again, this doctor saw the dangerous stone, anticipated that his son would fall over it and moved it out of the way when no one was looking. Then his son would know nothing of the danger from which his father's loving care had saved him. And so would have no reason to show gratitude. So imagine the father sees the stone, anticipates it, grabs the stone out of the way without the son knowing, and the son just goes about his day. The son wouldn't have a reason for gratitude, you could say. He would love him less than if he had healed some serious wound. Fair enough, right? Because there's nothing to show gratitude. But if he did find out the truth, surely his love would be even greater. So meaning if the son found out the truth that the father had removed the pain that would have inevitably come to him, wouldn't the son show even greater love to the father for, you know, bringing that, that suffering and that pain out of his way? Then if he had fallen over and like patched it up. And then she says, I am that child, the object of the father's loving providence, who did not send his son to call the just but sinners. He wants me to love him because he has forgiven me, not much, but everything. He did not wait for me to love him with a great love, like Magdalene's, but made me see that he had loved me first, with an infinite providence, so that now I may, I may love him in return, even unto folly. Hmm. I do like that, um, that concept of gratitude there. I mean... I think especially for St. Therese, because of all that she went through, I think that it was almost, I could be wrong, but I feel like it is almost easy for her to understand. Colin, you've cut out if you're still there. If not, he'll be admitted in a second. But um, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. Like, he wants me to love him because he's forgiven me not much, but everything. So her, her understanding of grace in this way is if Therese didn't have the graces of baptism, if she didn't have the graces, she would be a great sinner. And God didn't wait to dispense those graces for Therese to become a Magdalene and then for her to come back. And so she can have an even greater love for Christ because she knows that Christ removed the obstacles she definitely would have fallen on. So there's so much wrapped into this because you you think about it this way, right? So the grace is given after your baptism. You're freed of original sin and now you're brought into relationship with Christ. Um, And you're able to participate in those graces. Uh, Think about how many things, you know, sinful things you would have done um, had you not received the graces of baptism and had you not received, um, yeah, all the graces that come from being a Christian and being in that relationship with Christ. Kellen, I was just saying, like, um, you heard the the Therese quote, right? Um, that her theology here is, uh, she's saying, my love is gr- can be even greater than Mary Magdalene's because God has dispensed his graces. And I know that I would have, if I didn't have the graces of God, if I didn't have God's favor to me in my life by being baptized, raised in the family I did, the graces that God has given her, I would have become a great sinner. 
So she, she, that's, that's the assumption here, right? Like, and I think we can, that's, that is a clear statement of original sin, right? If you're a Catholic, you believe in the doctrine of original sin that we, you know, when we, you know, by becoming human, we enter into Adam's sin because we, you know, Adam has sinned in our sinful nature and without the graces that Christ gives, you know, those sins are going to be, you know, numerous and many. Um, we're only able to live a truly Christian life because of the graces of Christ in baptism and the habitual life of grace that we get to live. So Therese is saying, Mary Magdalene lived her sinful life, then Christ came and she lived in a state of grace after that. Christ knew I would have lived a sinful life without grace. And so he gave me all these graces. And so, you know, that's an even greater grace to be in that grace the whole time. And I love Christ because he's not forgiven me much, not forgiven me for all the sins. He's forgiven me everything. He's forgiven me original sin and all the sins I would have committed without his grace. <laughs> Thoughts on that, Mr. Lake? It's amazing at how, I mean, yeah, it's amazing at how, uh, you know, she, it, you know, required, you know, all of those graces. I mean, just the simple thought, you know, like the recovery of her soul, man, if she wasn't given these graces, she was going down the path of wrong. I mean, she was going to be a, a sinner. I mean, and we're all sinners, but we would, for, I mean, you know, he would, yeah, that's the point. Like, if we yeah. we didn't have the graces of baptism, the sacraments, like, I mean, what terrible sinners we would be. I mean, and her miraculous conversion is based on grace. I mean, the fact that is divinely given to her by God, that grace that she was given was a life changer. It changed her life forever. And that's what, God, I mean, it's so easy for us to get grace. I mean, we go to mass, we receive grace receive their sacraments and you know it's just it's it's so accessible for us we can go get these graces you know it's up to us but god will provide and when he did did that for saint therese i mean she just she blossomed like a little flower i mean she really did and you know she died young but those will never those graces just allowed her to go through her life and live it in the miraculous way that she did and it's hard work, right? It's not easy. And and her story, you know, she started with sickness, hallucinations, like I said, insomnia. Mm-hmm. Insomnia. I mean, that's crazy. And so she was given these graces throughout her life. And she was able to continue on that journey because God allowed that for her. And so it's amazing at just how that journey all came together, you know? And she's like, she's expressing that her love for Christ isn't because like she had to go have a sinful life that you have this big conversion experience story. Like you can have an even greater, when you recognize that without grace, you would be living such a sinful life and you'd be living in this really difficult state and you would be in a really, you know, be, be miserable. You can love you know, Christ who removed those obstacles that you would have fallen over and hurt yourself on. Just like the doctor, you know, the the father is removed the obstacle from the son. He should love the father more because he didn't have to trip over it and get hurt um, in order to love. It's really just, and you know, for, for Catholics, I think we can have a kind of like, oh, well, I've always been Catholic. Everything's kind of been normal or whatever, you know, I've received graces and I'm living in a state of grace and I haven't done really anything wrong. Like, and then kind of become stagnant in the fact of like, you're just living an okay, good life or whatever. 
right? But we should love so much that we know how sinful we would be. Like we should meditate on the fact like how bad we would actually be without the graces. You know, like I'm a pretty crappy person already, but if I didn't have any graces, I mean, just imagine, you know, the tremendous jerk I would be. You know, it, hey. it's, I mean, seriously, without the graces of Christ, I mean, it would be, it's, it's, um, you can't just say, you know, if you believe it really does make a difference and it makes a tremendous difference. We should love even more the fact that let's say cradle Catholics or whatever, because you didn't have a time where you were, you know, strung out on drugs and had a huge thing and then had a coming to Jesus moment. We should be even more grateful. You know, Therese is saying that Christ has removed those evils from occurring in our life. We should be grateful and loving for that. I mean, that's a huge theological point she's making very easily and very clearly with a very simple analogy. Yeah. And I mean, it's, yeah. So, I mean, we would all be, I mean, we would all be terrible human beings, crappy human beings. And, you know, I have a friend right now that I've been trying to, uh, I guess, counsel through a lot of stuff and it's a lot of it is like spiritual warfare kind of stuff. And, um, and so I'm just talking to her, like giving her tips and stuff. And it's just amazing at how, uh, she has, she doesn't, I mean, like she, so she doesn't really believe in God and she doesn't really know, you know, about the graces and, and just, and about grace at all, really. And so she's kind of just diving down this path of just sin and bad things and moral life. And it just blows my mind that, you know, some, you know, people can go to this extent without even acknowledging that there's people out there to help them, you know, Mm. and not just people, but a thing called grace. Christ, you know, ultimately he's there to help. He is the help, the one help, you know, Kellen may be having connection issues again. We need the one help. We need the help of, well, we need the help of Kellen's internet would be great. Uh, Twitch viewers, by the way, we are taking questions or thoughts or anything you have on St. Therese or what we're reading in chat. So please let us know. Um, hopefully Kellen will be back to, to continue his story. Uh, but I, I found this one of the most profound parts of, um, once again, we're, all these quotes are from the story of a soul, uh, her autobiography, which is like her, you know, her one work. Um, that's really big. The fact that she uses this analogy that, um, you know, just because she hasn't sinned so much doesn't mean she doesn't have a great love. The great love stems from the fact that she recognizes without grace how evil she would be and um, and basically how evil she would be. And so because of that, she loves Christ for what she, he has forgiven, basically forgiving everything in, in this regard. Um, if you haven't read Story of a Soul, we're still going to continue with some selections from it, but it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, one thing I did want to talk about, um, <clears throat> is her vocation and what she perceived as her vocation. Um, and it's, it's quite, quite astounding, right? Um, so obviously from the time she was 15, she knew she wanted to be a nun. She wanted to follow in this path and how she conceived of her vocation and, and what it actually was. By the way, guys, Twitch viewers, we are taking chat, so please uh, drop us some questions. Um, so beyond now moving on, we've talked a little bit about Grace. I wanted to talk a little bit about how she perceived her vocation, because um, obviously she saw um, 
you know, that uh, she wanted to be a religious from very, very early on in life. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me read this. This is probably the funniest. So there's a lot of really funny moments in the autobiography, but this takes the cake. Um, so this is what she says. For some time now, so in the context of her vocation, for some time now, I had been offering myself to the child Jesus as his little plaything, telling him not to treat me as, as the sort of expensive toy that children only look at without daring to touch. I wanted him to treat me like a little ball, so valueless that it can be thrown on the ground, kicked about, pierced, and left lying in a corner, or pressed close to his heart if he wants. In other words, I wished only to amuse the child Jesus and let him do with me exactly as he liked. Jesus had heard me, and in Rome he pierced his little plaything, because he wanted, I expect, to see what was inside. Then, satisfied with what he had found, he dropped his little ball and fell asleep. What did he dream about? What happened to the abandoned little ball? Jesus dreamed that he was still playing, that he picked up, he kept picking up his little ball and throwing it down again, that he rolled it far from him. But in the end, he held it close to his heart, never to let it slip from his hands again. You can guess how sad the little ball was left lying on the ground, though it went on hoping against hope. <laughs> A little ball to be thrown around and pierced and jeez. You know, I mean, tossed around, like, left wherever you want, enjoy it, press it close to your heart. You, I mean, belittling yourself 2.0. <laughs> Calling yourself a little ball. And her desire is to be the little ball plaything of the child Jesus. You know what? That That's great. I think I might put that up somewhere. Today make, today, make yourself a tiny ball that it can be pierced. And shut up and do good works. <laughs> I wish to become the little ball of the child Jesus. The little plaything oh little God. ball of the child Jesus. I but mean, it it's shows just you, like It shows you her entire, just her entire, uh, you know, life was just the concept of being little, you know, not being above, above what you should be. You know what I'm saying? And it, the beautiful thing about her life is this. She really displays like humility through just turmoil and torment. Mm -hmm. That's one of the most amazing things that I can just marvel on about her journey is how humble she was and how accepting she was and how obedient she was to her vocation. And despite the roller coaster that she had. Yeah, for real. I mean, she had a, a total roller coaster. She talks about, you know, like the ball, throw it on the ground, you forget about it. Jesus goes off and naps, you know, he comes back and he's like, Hey, this is cool. And he throws it around again. And <laughs> it's like, you Jesus know, napped. did Jesus really nap? Jesus was a big, was he a big napper? Jesus. Do you remember on the, on the boat, on the, the fishing boat when he has all the apostles with him and like, there's a huge storm and he's like downstairs asleep, napping. just hanging out, na napping. Yeah. Jesus was a napper, man. He took some naps. He was asleep and they come down and he's like, what are you freaking out about? <laughs> so. It's just so, I just find it, it's just so hilarious because like, you know, you have these really like that beautiful section of, you know, being the little flower. Um, and then I think the foil to that is being the little ball. <laughs> the little flower gets this real nice image of like, you know, beautiful flower amongst all these great flowers. And then you get the image of like, yeah, I'm just a little ball. And sometimes Christ likes to just throw me in the corner. Sometimes he pierces my heart, like see what's inside. It's like... I, I almost 
You know, what if it was like St. Therese, the little ball? Like, what if that became the nickname? <laughs> if the nickname Saint was... Therese, the little ball. I like it better, man. I like little flower. I mean, I guess it's it's better in that regard. But like, in my opinion, little ball, um, it's the foil to little flower. So if you, if you think, oh, little flower, that's too cutesy. Um, St. Therese, the, the little, little ball. ball. Dude, I wouldn't uh, mind. If someone called me, you know, St. Alex... The little ball. I would be very happy. St. Alex, the little ball. I know. Ball. I I like that. The little ball. I mean, I don't know. I guess it is. Well, it might sound a little weird. I don't know. Like, you just, you just got to roll with it. You just got to roll with it. You just got to roll with it. Yeah. No, it's, I, I think it's, and you could really tell, like, there's just such a, how do you say it? It's, it's a, you know, being able to express that. The fact that, like, there's so much wrapped in that analogy. You know, this is the reason why, you know, Therese really is a doctor. Like, what is a doctor of the church? It's it's somebody who explains the doctrines and explains the Christian life in such a way that it's completely, like, people can, it's, it, it's accessible, you know, and people can really understand. And they're a teacher, ultimately. Like, saying that in her life, she just wanted to be the little plaything of Christ. Um. And and to, to to explain it as the little ball, I mean, wh- what's asserted there? First of all, it's like Christ is in control, and then what else is asserted there? Like, in the eyes of reality and of everything, like we're as insignificant as a little ball. But it doesn't mean that Christ doesn't care for his little ball. You know, it's something precious to him. Like you want to, Therese wanted to make herself precious to Christ, and. Um, you know, the little ball is this this analogy she used. Kellen, you're still there, yeah? Cutting out a little bit. But um, yeah, so I wanted to read that section. Um, and, and she sees her vocation as being part of that, as, as coming closer to Christ. Um, the things that she read, um, the imitation of Christ, she read that. Uh, she almost knew it by heart, um, what she, she, she related. And she read the Gospels and, um, and some of the, you know, writings of the apostles. That's what she read. She was trying to draw closer to Christ's heart and all of it. And uh, ultimately in her vocation, the the biggest thing, uh, actually, we're going to take a short, well, let me, let me get uh, Kellen in here. We might take a short break. Um, but I wanted to continue talking about religious vocation. Um, Kellen, we're going to take a, Kellen, you there? Yeah. We're going to take a really, really short break. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to Calvin and Alex show part two of talking about St. Therese. And uh, I wanted to get into talking about, let's get into gallery view here. Hopefully uh, sounds all right. Yep. I think we're all set there. Um, Kellen's joining right now. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Dope. So I wanted to talk a little bit about her um, her vocation and and what she saw as her vocation. Um, so after discussing her as the little ball, wow, we have two of you in here, <laughs> two Kellen Lakes. We got Lake MTB. We got two. That's weird. Um, one sec. No, I know we're we're good. we're good we're good we're good we're good. So I want to talk a little bit about her what what she saw we as her good, vocation. Baby. She has this huge um, 
she has this idea. So she really takes seriously her being a virgin and being a uh, and being united to Christ in relig- religious life as being truly a bride of Christ. Um, she takes it super seriously. Um, so right before her taking final vows, she writes this: A few hours before my profession, I received the precious blessing from the Holy Father sent on from Rome. The vigil preceding the dawn of one's day of profession is normally full of consolation, but mine. During mine, my vocation suddenly appeared to me nothing but a dream, some idle fancy. The devil, yes, it was certainly the devil, made me feel sure that I was quite unsuited for the Carmelite life, and that I was only deceiving my superiors by persisting in a life to which I was not called. So she has a really, like, you know, so deep became my darkness that one fact alone was clear to me. I did not have a religious vocation and must return to the world. My anguish was indescribable. What did it, did one do in such a crisis? Only one thing. Tell the novice mistress of all about it at once. So she has this like intense experience of like, I don't have a religious vocation. The day before she's supposed to profess final vows. And so what was she to do about that? And she said, I only had one thing to do. Go to my novice mistress, who's the one who's looking after the novices, right? One of the nuns. Um. So I went and called her out of choir and in great embarrassment revealed the state of my soul. Luckily, she could see things more clearly than I did. She only laughed at my fears and reassured me completely. Moreover, my act of humility acted like a charm in putting the devil to flight. He had hoped to catch me in his toils by getting me to trouble, keep my trouble to myself. But it was I who caught him. I completed my humiliation by revealing the whole thing to Mother Prioress too. And her consoling reply dispelled my doubts entirely. So the day before she was going to make her final profession to be a religious, and she'd been wanting this for forever, right? She had an immense experience, you know, and she said, it's definitely the devil who said, you do not have a religious vocation. Mm -hmm. And the way she got out of it was telling that embarrassing fact of her immense feeling of that to her superiors. And her superiors were like, you're insane. That's really funny. (laughs) So... Like the way to beat the devil in this situation was to get the advice of those who knew her better. And her superiors were like, you definitely have a religious vocation. And that's wow. that's a very interesting, like, that should tell you a lot about like vocation. Like, you know, having other people's opinions, you know, can override those like feelings of doubt, those feelings of despair, because, um, and it and it's humiliating. She she admits it's kind of humiliating the fact that the day before her profession, she'd been on this path for forever, and she had this immense feeling like what the devil wanted was her to keep that to herself, but she needed to reveal that humiliation, that embarrassment, and and to her superiors in order to, you know, get through that. Wow. I mean, it, you know, it like I like I said again, man. She it comes back to her faith. I mean, Satan literally telling her, "You have no vocation. What do you think you're doing?" you don't have any vocation. What are you doing? And she just goes back and those graces, man, I tell you what, those, that perseverance got her through that and entered the, I wonder what the youngest age of a woman entering the convent is. Cause how old was she? 16. Is there, is there a record here? <laughs> is there <laughs> I don't know. Some saint that went in when she was like born, you know, she got born in the convent and raised in it. No, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's a 16, geez. I mean, 
I barely passed my driving test at 16. You know, like giving your whole life and religious vocation, it's it's quite astounding. And, and the way that she, you know, figured out, yes, I have a religious vocation. Um, well, the way that she got through this, you know, immense feeling of despair and saying, I don't have a vocation is asking her superiors, asking those who actually know more about her to confirm it. And uh, she gets through it. Um, the following morning, September 8th, an outpouring of peace flooded my soul. That peace which surpasseth, surpasseth, surpasseth all understanding. And in this peace, I pronounced my sacred vows. Get Kellen back in this for this one. I asked for so many graces. Um, see which Kellen is going to be the real one here. I really felt I was a queen and I took advantage of my title to get all the favors I could from the king for his ungrateful subjects. I did not forget anyone. Close to my heart, I carried this letter expressing all my own desires. Uh, so we have two Kellen Lakes again and we're about to get one. Dope. Welcome back. Um, so this is her letter that she wrote um, on the day of her professing religious, her final vows, she said, Jesus, my divine spouse, grant that I may ever keep my baptismal robe spotless. Take me from this world rather than let me tarnish my soul by one small voluntary fault. May I seek and find you alone. May no mortal creature absorb my heart, nor I theirs. May nothing in the world ever disturb my peace. O Jesus, it is peace I beg of you, peace and above all boundless love. Jesus, let me die for you a martyr. Grant me martyrdom of soul or of body, or better still, grant me both. Grant that I may keep my vows perfectly, that no one may trouble about me, that I may be trampled underfoot, forgotten like a tiny grain of sand. I offer myself to you, my beloved, that you may do in me everything you will, unhindered by any created obstacle. She says before that she felt that she really was a queen. Because now she's, you know, married to Christ in professing these religious vows. Wow. The the selflessness that comes out of that. I mean, just the way that she, you know, professes to God, use me, make me be your tool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like it's. Go ahead, Alex. No, I was just going to say, you know, she took ridiculously seriously the fact that, you know, as a virgin and as professing religious vows, she's truly a spouse of Christ. Like not even just just a purely analogical way, but like that was like her wedding day. And she even (laughs) she even says, um, oh, this is so. Yeah, she said, if I really belong to Jesus as his plaything to console and entertain him, it was for me to do what he wanted, not what I wanted. I realized too that a bride would not be very pleasing to her bridegroom on their wedding day unless she were beautifully arrayed. And I had done very little towards this. And then she sets out to, to really, um, to really, you know, become, uh, virtuous in order to be, you know, a proper bride. Uh, (laughs) listen to this part of it. The moment I set foot in the cloister after she professed um, initial vows, so this is before her her final vows, my eyes fell upon the little statue of the child Jesus smiling at me from the midst of flowers and lights. I I turned towards the quadrangle, the, the inner part of the cloister, and I saw that it was completely covered in snow. 
What delicacy on the part of Jesus to gratify his little bride's every desire. He had sent her snow. What mortal man could ever cause one flake to fall from the sky to charm the one he loves? Everyone was really astounded because the temperature was all against it, and I know that since then, many, on finding out that I had such a strange love of snow and about my wish, often call it the little miracle of my my clothing. Of her, uh, So on her, her uh, day that she professed her vows, um, she said that she's always been fond of snow, and on that day, she sees the statue of the child Jesus and then looks into the cloister, and they miraculously had snow on a day that definitely didn't call for snow. <laughs> and she says, you know, what husband could uh, send snow for his bride and adorn her on on the day of their wedding? Oh, man. It's just so good. I had the power to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she talks about like, okay, so eight days after this, after her final profession, Jean Green, my uh, cousin, was married to Dr. Neil. And the next time she was able to visit me, she told me all the countless things she did for her husband. I felt my heart thrill and thought, no one shall say that a woman in the world does more for her husband, who is merely mortal, than I do for my beloved Jesus. Filled with fresh ardor, I set myself as never before to do everything to please my heavenly spouse, the King of Kings, who had chosen to honor me by a divine alliance. Kingly right there, man. That's royalty. It's crazy, dude. That's crazy. I... I don't know how to comment on this. Twitch viewers, if you guys know how to comment on this, drop some comments for us, but I'm, I'm just kind of just basking in the sunlight on this. You know, like the desire to, you know, love and please husband or please wife and um, that desire and love. She says like, I know that that love, that spousal love, I now am in that alliance, that divine alliance with Christ through professing my final vows. No one shall say that a woman in the world does more for her husband who is merely mortal than I do for my beloved Jesus. It's like in terms of religious vocation, like that's ridiculously inspiring. Um, one of this peanut says we should all get married and figure out the truth of that statement. <laughs> it's true. Well, I mean, either, um, you know, united to spousally married to Christ, spousally married to the church, or, you know, spousally married and, um, and find the truth of that statement. Want this peanut. We, uh, we hope for, to attend your, your glorious wedding, whenever that is. Um, definitely invite all of us, all 400 viewers here on Twitch. Uh, but yeah, let me, let me know what you guys think about, about that. I mean, she takes extremely seriously the fact that she is now a, uh, a bride of Christ in a very real and serious way. Um, and I'm going to wait for this next, this next, uh, this part. So just commenting more on the fact of like her as a religious, really taking seriously, like her vocation as being a spouse of Christ. Um, and the fact that her cousin comes to her and, you know, is telling her all the times that she's really trying to show her love and her affection for her husband and doing countless things for her, uh, for him rather. And, she says, no one shall say that a woman in the world does more for her husband who is merely mortal than I do for my beloved Jesus. It's like, you know, what love she has, you know, in this, in this way, the supernatural way, this divine alliance that she talks about with Christ, even greater than, you know, the love that husband and wife can give for each other. And um, she, always, she always seems just so engaged in the concept of love. I mean, you know, the selflessness, the selflessness about her and just 
like you said, even like stronger than the love between a man and a woman. I mean, she gave her life to God in the convent and just her, her love for Christ and for the world and for, and just her evangelization and her story alone is just, it's like a unbelievable firework that goes off and just lights up the world. I mean, it's amazing at how, at, at what she did and, and that love that she had, that love that she possessed. I don't know how hard she had to work at it, but she sure as heck possessed some amazing amounts of love and just, and the way that she was able to show it through her humility and selflessness really just, it, it tops it off, man. It's just a love like no other. It's like one that comes around every, you know, once in a lifetime. And she, and she, think about this. She only lived to be 25. Yep. She lived another 50 years. Well, I guess it was way back then. So she, well, she probably wouldn't have lived that long since given the time. But I think, you know, at least she, just another 10 years in her life would have just, and you know, and it just comes to show that we should be grateful for the impact that she gave to the world and the amount of time that she had. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. This next section, <laughs> I, this is, this is wild. This, this love she has for Christ, right? Okay. So having seen the wedding invitations, the invitations that her cousin had sent, you know, to, um, I amused myself by making up the following invitation, which I read aloud to the novices. So she's a novice as well, right? But she wanted to read this wedding invitation she had made for herself, according for her profession. And she read it out loud to the novices. Something had struck me, and I wanted to bring it home to them. The glory of earthly unions cannot compare with the glory of being the spouse of Jesus. And this is the invitation. And I'll show you the, this is how big it is, the invitation. But I'll read it out loud. Almighty God the creator of heaven and earth and ruler of the world and the most glorious Virgin Mary, queen of the court of heaven, invite you to the spiritual marriage of their august son, Jesus, king of kings and lord of lords, with little Therese Martin, now lady and princess of the kingdoms of the childhood and passion of Jesus, given in dowry by her divine spouse, from whom she holds her titles of nobility, of the child Jesus and of the holy face. It was not possible to invite you to the wedding feast celebrated on Mount Carmel on September 8, 1890, only the celestial choir being admitted. You are nevertheless invited to the bride's reception tomorrow, the day of eternity, when Jesus, the Son of God, will come in splendor on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. The hour being uncertain, please hold yourself in readiness and watch. I just love the anticipation and the, and just the, you know, kind of putting the person on the edge, you know, on the edge of their seat, looking and just the wonders of heaven coming down. It's like, oh my gosh, dude, this is going to happen to us someday. And it's going to be absolutely amazing. I can't wait. Dude. And, and she's like, she's saying, I am, you know, in a very special way participating in, you know, a divine union with Jesus. And, you know, God invites you to, participate in this wedding feast that I'm going to have, you know, Jesus, you know, the spiritual marriage of Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords with little Therese Martin, now lady and princess of the kingdom of the childhood and passion of Jesus, right? That through her, you know, God sending, you know, God and the Virgin Mary send you this invitation of their wedding 
of the wedding of their son, Jesus, with little Therese Martin. And it's just like, she t- she takes that extremely seriously, you know, like, and she's reading this to novices who are, are anticipating having, you know, becoming a spouse of Christ as well. And it really does show you as well that she takes seriously the fact that being a religious and offering herself in this very special way allows her to be, to participate in dispensing graces in a very particular way. She, she receives a dowry by her divine spouse, and she holds titles of nobility of the child Jesus and of the holy face. Like, you know, the graces you can mediate, and this doesn't mean everyone has a religious vocation, but the religious vocation, you know, for those who are called to it, like, you get to mediate graces according to this divine union that you've expressed by giving up earthly you know, earthly marriage and earthly family, you receive, like Jesus says, you receive a hundredfold, um, 30-fold, 60-fold, a hundredfold. What you give up, you receive these these graces and you become a mediation of that, right? And this is, it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a very beautiful, you know, analysis of that. And for sure. And I can't wait. And, you know, we, we should definitely talk about this more. Unfortunately, I have to go because... It's seven twenty. Go sing. Gotta go sing. Okay, I think Kellen's uh, Kellen's internet's gone down. Uh, but yeah, he has to he has to go now. But I'm still gonna continue a little bit longer on uh, probably up until eight on the autobiography points that I I just really love. I, I hope you guys are enjoying this so far. The theology of Saint Therese really is just astounding. The things she's able to write. Um, <laughs> you are nevertheless invited to the bride's reception tomorrow, the day of eternity, when Jesus, the son of God will come in splendor on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. Um, that it's a real union that she's talking about. It isn't just something, um, let me see if Kellen might want to say one final thing before he goes. Um, it's a real union. It's not, it's not just a nice analogy that she talks about. Um, it's Colin coming in or maybe not it's not just a, it, a nice analogy hey, hey Alex yeah you gotta go brother yeah. it's been it's been fantastic yeah hey guys thank you so much Twitch viewers sorry this is a little bit rocky for me but I will be in a way better spot uh, and there won't be any glitches or anything but Thank you guys for this awesome podcast. Thanks guys for tuning in. And uh, Kellen will be you, back uh, I'll see next, you next week. I got, yeah, I got asked to be, you know, singing at the ordination of a priest, like by the bishop or so. so Is that today? Uh, no, it's like in, uh, in like a week. So I have to go practice and go exercise my voice in some very complex songs. So I have to go practice. Dude, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. Speaking of ordination. That's awesome. All right, brother. Godspeed. Perfect. All the best to you. Thank you guys. Peace. Thank you. Peace. Dope. Okay. Yeah. That that's he's going to an ordination. That's pretty cool. Uh so I'm gonna continue a little bit more, a few more quotes. By the way, please uh drop stuff in chat. Um she takes really seriously the fact of this 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 union, this marital union. Like it's not uh when when she talks about it, it's something very serious. And I think that's something we really need to reclaim in talking about religious vocation is um when you give up, uh, thanks for thanks for dropping again. One slap. How's it going, guys? Hope y'all been doing well. We're talking some theology today. Actually, we're talking uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux, story of a soul. 
fantastic book. Um, yeah, going more into the theology. Good to see you, one slap. Um, yeah, she takes her vocation very, very seriously. And I think it's something we really need to reclaim with regards to religious vocation um, is when you give up, you know, having a, a marriage, earthly marriage, you're not giving up marriage technically. You're, you're the, you know, obviously the bodily union and child, children and all that. But as Christ says, if you give up these things, you will receive a hundredfold what you've given up. And, you know, mother, father, brother, sisters, lands, um, when you follow Christ in this very special way. And Therese, uh, St. Therese really, you know, is serious about this, that when she takes these religious vows, she becomes a spouse of Christ, you know. Um, and when a man takes these vows to the church, uh, whether it's becoming a, a an ordained clergy or becoming a religious, um, you truly are married to the church in a very particular way. When the priest um, receives ordination or when a religious professes his final vows, he really takes on a special union of him and the church, the people of God, um, as being a, a spousal union, right? And when the priest offers mass, he's expressing this highest love that only he can offer in that particular way. And the, the man mediates that that grace in a, in a manly way and the woman in a, uh, a feminine way. And uh, I think Therese really um, gets to the heart of that on vocation. And it's very interesting. She has these doubts, um, the doubts of her vocation that seep in. Um, but she, you know, perseveres through it. So I want to talk also a little, a little bit about like the dark period. So, so Therese talks about the fact that she has, you know, these really dark periods in her life where she doesn't even know. Um, she doesn't, she experiences these great heights, but she also experiences these great lows. Um, one of the low parts I want to talk about. Um, so this is a little bit later um, in her her life uh, in the convent. She said, since childhood, as I said, I'd been certain that one day I would leave my dark world behind. I do not think that this was only from what I had heard. The very desires and intuitions of my inmost heart assured me that another and more lovely land awaited me an abiding sitting, just as the genius of Christopher Columbus gave him a presentment of a new world. So she's always, ever since she was a child, obviously, you know, longed for heaven and wanted to be in heaven. Um, however, then suddenly the fog about me seems to enter my very soul and fill it to such an extent that I cannot even find the lovely picture I had formed of my homeland. Everything had disappeared. So she has this period in her life, you know, all her life she's been longing for heaven and for um, doing, you know, the things of Christ. But however, she goes through this period where this fog enters her soul and she couldn't even find this image, this lovely picture she had formed of her homeland. When weary of being enveloped by nothing but darkness, I tried to comfort and encourage myself with the thought when, sorry, when weary of being enveloped by nothing but darkness, I try to comfort and encourage myself with the thought of the eternal life to come. It only makes matters worse. The very darkness seems to echo the voices of those who do not believe and mocks at me. You dream of a light and of a fragrant land. You dream that the creator of this loveliness will be yours for all eternity. You dream of escaping one day from these mists in which you languish. Dream on. Welcome death. It will not bring you what you hope. It will bring an even darker night, the night of nothingness. So she has this really dark section here in, in the story of soul where she, she's St. Therese is worried 
you know, the image of heaven that she's always been perceiving, you know, she entered religious life, she entered, um, you know, this, this particular union with Christ and, and she's been desiring heaven this whole time. She couldn't even make an image of heaven anymore. You know, people think often that you have faith and then you have this strong faith and then everything's just rosy from there. But you have St. Therese, who's gone all the way to enter religious life and she can't even imagine heaven anymore. She's not getting any consolations from her faith. And she keeps having these dreams of just, you think you're going to go to heaven after you die, but you're really just going to be annihilated. You're just going to die. Like, like the atheist propositions. If you think about during the time in which St. Therese is living, this is the time when atheism is really getting going in the late 1800s, right? She was a contemporary of Nietzsche, of these other great uh, intellectuals of the time who were professing a, a, a form of atheism in which you live life and you die and that's it. And these dreams are now appearing to her and she doesn't know what to do. Um, she says, this picture of my trial is no more than a rough sketch compared to the, the reality, but I dare not say more for fear it might be blasphemy. So <laughs> she's like, and I'm painting this bleak picture of my trial of faith, but it's actually a lot bleaker than I'm painting it, but I dare not say more for fear it might be blasphemy. So she's like, I can't even tell you like the doubts of faith that I ended up having here. And it's it's not a full doubt, right? She still believes these things, but um, these are really, really paining her. Perhaps I've said too much already. God forgive me, but he knows that I try to practice my faith, even though it brings me no joy. So she's at a point in her life. And by the way, Twitch viewers, drop us any uh, comments or stuff you guys uh, think regarding this or, her, you know, her faith wasn't one that like, oh, my mind's obviously set on the things I believe and I'm receiving the consolations based on this. She's at a point in her life and she's a religious. She's living every day, receiving the Eucharist, praying, living with her sisters, living for Christ. You know, she had that, that great section where she talks about being a bride of Christ and offering herself. And she has this point in her life where she has no desire or thoughts towards heaven. And the only thing that envelops her thoughts and her faith is annihilation. The fact that she'll die and that'll be it. It's, you know, her, okay, going back to her being a doctor of the church, right? What, what is she teaching us with this? Like, I think people expect the saints to all have just eternal, just happiness of happiness and peace throughout all their life regarding their faith, regarding what they're doing. Um, and Therese here is very clearly saying like, all those things did happen in, in their own time and place, but here in this time and place, I can't even express to you the reality of how serious, um, yeah, how seriously low I was. The, the very darkness seems to echo and says, you dream of a light and fragrant land. Dream on, welcome death. It will bring you, it'll not bring you what you hope. It will bring an even darker night, the night of nothingness. And you wonder like, so Nietzsche firmly believed in this night of nothingness. And I'm, I'm quite, I've read quite a lot of Nietzsche. And his response to this night of nothingness, as my hat goes flying, um, was the will to power. It's, it's the idea that, okay, well, night of nothingness is coming. This is all we have, this life. And so make the best of it with your will, right? And I think a lot of people live kind of practically in that way that this is it. There's no afterlife get as much power, get all the fulfillment you can. And, you know, Therese in this 
moment is like feeling the despair of that, right? And if you think about like the great authors that come after her, the existentialist and the 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 nihilist and the atheist that are all coming like these late 1800s times, right? These ideas are floating. I think it's really um, she's experiencing in her soul the the despair that these writers, these existentialists, these you know these great intellectuals who are now leading the charge in moving the West away from God, she's experiencing in her own soul what that feels like when that darkness seems to encompass you. So I think as well, she she's given a grace here to understand the despair of her time. And I, I, I genuinely believe this, like being a contemporary of Nietzsche and being a contemporary of these great intellectuals, I think she's plugged into what all like her, the particular let's say struggle of her time is a, is a struggle of doubt in the intellectual life of, you know, she's also a contemporary of Dostoevsky and I'm a, obviously a huge fan of Dostoevsky. And, and that's one of the things that Dostoevsky deals with extensively is um, a lot of his characters. You have Ivan and brothers Karamazov. Um, you have um, in demons and the possessed. You have one of the characters who's a through and through atheist, nihilist, Piotr, as well as Nikolai in demons and the possessed. Dostoevsky, same time as St. Therese, Nietzsche, same time as St. Therese, deals head on with these issues of atheism. And Therese gets this grace to experience this in her own soul. And, and, you know, even the great saints, you know, don't have just extended just consolation their entire life. It's, It's really this line, he knows that I try to practice my faith, even though it brings me no joy. I have made more acts of faith in the last year than during all the rest of my life. So people think if I don't have the feelings and I don't have the consolation, therefore it must be false, right? That's the real test of faith is if you don't have those consolations, if you don't have those, um, the, the joys of being a Christian and the joys of being in the faith, if you're not having those. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, then it must not be true. Um, however, that's the test of faith. I mean, if you think about Abraham, you know, our father in faith, Abraham, he, uh, (laughs) what was the consolation that he received for being faithful to God? He had to go to a foreign land and completely abandon his family, everything else. He went to a foreign land. He got his butt kicked by everybody who was, who he encountered. And, um, he meets Lot, his cousin and Lot almost dies from being in Sodom. And then, you know, fire comes from heaven. That's not really a nice welcome. Everyone hears about how Abraham Abraham had this, you know, crazy cousin who almost died in this homosexual city or whatever. And um, and then Abraham has to, you know, make it on his own. He tries to have a kid. It doesn't, you know, he doesn't have any children. His name means great father and he has no kids, which is hilarious. And, uh, and then he's like, God's like, I'm going to give you a kid. And Abraham's like, okay, when? And it's taking forever and forever and forever. And, uh, and then, uh, <laughs> Carrie just sent me a meme. Thank you, Carrie, for that. Frederick Nietzsche, God is dead. And then Nietzsche dies 18 years later. Nietzsche is dead. The greatest joke of all time. Thank you for, for sending that to me, Carrie. Um, but yeah, no, Abraham trusts in God. He has faith. And then what does he receive for that faith? Does he receive just all these consolations, all these joys? You know, like you read St. Therese and you're like, wow, she's so joyful and everything else. No. Abraham receives trial after trial after trial after trial, which culminates in the ultimate trial where he takes Isaac, his only son, all the way up the mountain to kill him, 
right? Like faith makes demands. I think this is what we get from this. And it doesn't always provide just happiness and peace and consolations. And Therese is, is saying that here. She dreams all, all that's consuming her thoughts in this moment is annihilation, that I'm going to die. And this is it. There's nothing I can do. And I think she's really plugged in, you know, through these graces. I think she's plugged in to um, the, the time. And you guys in chat, you can, you know, does she seem to capture in this, like the sentiment of her time? I mean, you think about these great existentialist, atheist, nihilists. I think she's plugged in. And I, I think she's received this kind of grace to know. Um, let, let's continue with what she says. She says, I expect you will think that I am exaggerating the night of my soul. To judge by the poems I've written this year, I must appear to be overwhelmed with consolation, a child for whom the veil of faith is almost torn apart. Yet it is no longer a veil. It is a wall reaching almost to heaven, shutting out the stars. <laughs> so she's like, look, mother, you may think that I'm, uh, you know, receiving all these consolations and whatever else, but I definitely am not. I, <laughs> you may think the veil of faith is almost torn apart, but the veil, like the veil of faith, you know, separating us from God, you may think like, oh, I'm seeing all these things. She's like, no, it's not a veil. It's a wall going from here all the way to, to heaven. That's what, that's where I'm at. <laughs> it's a wall reaching almost to heaven, shutting out the stars. When I sing of heaven's happiness of what it is to possess God forever, I feel no joy. I simply sing of what I want to believe. Now and then I must admit a gleam of light shines through the dark night to bring a moment's respite. But afterwards, its memory, instead of consoling me, only makes my night darker than ever. I mean, guys in chat, let me let me know what you think about this. But this is her, you know, dark night of the soul that people talk about. Um, she She sees it as a wall reaching all the way to heaven. The fact that... She's not able to see it. When I sing of heaven's happiness, of what it is to possess God forever, I feel no joy. This is like, you know, faith is known through this testing and this dark night, not receiving these consolations and these joys of heaven's joy and, and knowing all these things. Like, that's a, that's a trial and it's a trial of faith. And I think we should expect this in our lives. And it doesn't make it any less, you know, difficult, but what would be the worst, obviously, in this time of testing, in this time of trial? Because I don't feel consolations and I don't experience the joys of my own life, therefore it must not be true, right? I think that's the temptation, right? Just because now I'm receiving the Eucharist over and over and over again, and I'm not feeling that that grab, I'm not feeling Christ in the Eucharist. Oh, therefore it must not be true. Um, if I'm going to mass and I'm not feeling like super into the things, you know, that's going on. Well, it must not be true. Um, you know, in our society being having, we want to, we, we think it's an A to B proposition. We think if all these things are true, I must experience them. Um, but you may have experienced them in the past and you may be in this, you know, total dark night. And this isn't, you know, she thinks like, she's not saying I don't have faith. Uh, that, that she's not saying, look, I don't, it's not that I don't have faith. It's just, I'm not receiving any of, uh, any of the results, uh, of this faith at all. Um, I'm going to exit this real quick. I'm not even going to leave. Let's just end meeting and start meeting again. Sorry about this guys. Using it with zoom, even though I'm 
I don't think I actually need computer audio, but hey, that was me without uh, with the beard. Crazy. Unmute. Start video. Bam. Back. Yeah. So let me know what you guys think about this this Dark Knight of the Soul um, that we're seeing here. Uh, I highly, I mean, immensely recommend this. I'm probably going to read a few more quotes before we before we uh, we hit out. Uh, I'm going till eight. The story of a soul, Saint Teresa of Lisieux. Yeah, she's the Besides St. Francis, probably the most well-known Catholic saint, uh, except for like the apostles. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't recommend highly enough her story of a soul. I mean, you could really just understand her. Uh, let, let's just give one uh, example of kind of her, her, you can really just experience like her just living out a Catholic life and just the glory of that. Um, <laughs> She said, I do not normally feel any anxiety when going to Holy Communion, but there was one occasion when I did. There had been a, st- a shortage of hosts for several days, so that I had only received only a small piece. And on this particular morning, I most foolishly said to myself, if I only receive part of a host today, I will know that Jesus does not really want to come into my heart. I went up and to my joy, after a moment's hesitation, the priest gave me two complete hosts. What a lovely answer. <laughs> So, like, even, you know, so great a saint as Therese, like, she she just randomly is having this, you know, this irrational, you know, obviously she knows that any particle of the host is the full Christ, but she's having this, you know, just irrational just feeling as we, you know, people do of, like, there'd been a shortage of host and she only received a small piece, you know, days after days. She foolishly said to herself, if I only receive a part of a host today, I will know for sure Jesus does not really come want, want to come into my heart. <laughs> so she just makes this kind of like, all right, God, here you go. T- try me, you know, whatever. You Maybe you could even say it's testing God or whatever. She probably thinks, you know, she says this is foolishly, but she goes up and receives two complete full hosts. And uh, what a lovely answer, she says. Um, there's many, many more stories like this. Similarly to this, um, she gives a story of... Um, she has this, one of the main points she has in it is, in the, in the autobiography, is her desire to offer herself on behalf of sinners. And she has this really amazing story about this famous murderer who was in the news that she offers prayers for. Um, so she says, the cry of Jesus as he died, I thirst, echoed every moment in my soul, inflaming my heart with a burning love. I longed to satisfy his thirst for souls. I was consumed myself with the same thirst and yearned to save them from the everlasting fires of hell, no matter what the cost. So she has this great desire to save souls, to be a mediation of, uh, of saving grace with Christ. Then Jesus stirred up my love even more by letting me see how pleased he was with these longings of mine. I'd been hearing people talk about a not- notorious criminal called Pranzini, who had been condemned to death for several brutal murders. And as he was unrepentant, it was thought he was going to lose his soul. So he's an Italian. He's obviously a Catholic. He'd done several murders and was going to be executed. He wasn't repentant. And so Catholics are saying he's going to lose his soul because he's unrepentant. Um, I longed to save him from this final tragedy. But though I did use every spiritual means in my power, I knew that by myself, there was nothing I could do to ransom him. And so I offered for him our Lord's infinite merits and all the treasures of the church. So she offers the merits of Christ and of the church to God, you know, to, um, on behalf of Pranzini, 
And uh, needless to say, deep down in my heart, I was sure he would be reprieved, but I wanted some encouragement to go on in my search for souls. So she said, after offering this, this great prayer on behalf of Pranzini, she wants a sign of this. My God, I am sure you are going to forgive this wretched Pranzini, and I have so much confidence in your mercy that I shall go on being sure, even though he does not go to confession or show any sign at all of being sorry. So she she expresses her faith that like by offering these merits, she fully trusts in God's mercy that she that he will be saved. However, because he is my first sinner, please give me just one sign to let me know. So she's she's dedicated herself to offering her prayers and sacrifices to Christ on behalf of sinners, but she asked Christ, this is my first sinner I've really prayed for. You know, give me a sign that he's been repentant, that I can like latch onto it and know it for certain. He answered me to the letter. Father never used to let me read the papers, but I didn't think I was being disobedient when I rushed to LaCroix uh, the day after he was executed. LaCroix? The Cross, this is the name of the paper. The day after he was ex- executed and turned to the bit about Pr- Pranzini. Guess what I found? I was so moved to tears. I was so moved that tears came to my eyes and I had to rush out of the room. Pranzini had gone to the scaffold without confession or absolution and was being led to the block by the executioner when he suddenly turned around. The priest had been holding out a crucifix to him, and as if moved by some inspiration, he had seized it and kissed the sacred wounds three times. This was my sign, and it touched me very much, since it had been the sight of of the blood flowing from one of these very wounds that had given me my thirst for souls. I had wanted to give them his precious blood to drink to wash their sins away. And here was my firstborn, pressing his lips to his wounds. What a wonderful answer. After this, my desire to save souls grew day by day. Yeah, just an amazing story. So she offers all these things for his repentance, obviously, um, for him to be saved because he's about to be executed. And then, (laughs) you know, the day before, um, she says, look, Lord, I, I need a sign for um, what's going on here. Uh, give me a sign to show this is my first soul that I've offered you know these merits for. And, uh, and uh, right as he was being led to the scaffold, he turns and sees the crucifix and then kisses the, the sacred wounds three times. Yeah, so just immense faith coming from St. Therese. And um, you really get to see like, in terms of the human emotion sides of it, she has these great experiences and these great loves and these great, let's say, emotional experiences that go along with it when she does. And then she has these dark nights of the soul um, and they're they're pretty intense. And, you know, <laughs> all within 25 years of her life, um, all these very varied experiences and her reactions to them and her faith. And you really get to see that she's living a full and complete and very graced life within these these 25 years and you can really understand like how immensely impactful she is for the modern age um that she's able to have all these different experiences and i I, and then write about them in such a way that you know we can all latch onto that and say i've had experiences of that I've, i've experienced that and and her deep faith you know, it's not denying her humanity in any way. It's just, it's um, it's completely embracing her humanity and just admitting it in such a, a very simplistic and straightforward way. 
it's it's really quite astounding. And it's, I think it's the reason why you know she's been so popular in the modern age. We talked about it at the, the, the beginning of the podcast. The fact that besides St. Francis, St. Therese is the most recognized and, and, and uh, read about saint in, um, since apostolic times, since Peter and Paul. Um, this, and, and she's a doctor of the church for her little way of spiritual childhood, um, her little way of trusting in Christ and trusting in his mercy. This so to kind of wrap up what we what we said about her. Um, <laughs> all the different treatments of grace, grace working in her life, her religious vocation, um, the fact that she really truly believes that you know she is becoming a bride of Christ and how seriously she takes that. Therese, the little ball, which is just a fan, uh, such a fantastic story. Um, I think that should be her true title. Little Flower is fantastic. Therese, the little ball. I think that's probably the funniest um, part of this. And then she wants to be a great saint. Um, maybe this is the last thing we can we can wrap up on this. Um, it was at this time that I, I was given what I've always considered one of my life's greatest graces. For God did not enlighten me then in the way he does now. He taught me that the only glory which matters is the glory which lasts forever, and that one does not have to perform shining deeds to win that, but to hide one act, one's act of virtue from others, and even from oneself. I was sure that I was born to be great, and began to wonder how I should set about winning my glory. Then it was revealed to me in my heart that my glory would lie in becoming a saint, though this glory would be hidden on earth. This aspiration may see, seem presumptuous considering how imperfect I was and still am. Even so, after many years in religion, yet I am daringly confident that one day I shall become a great saint. I'm not relying on my own merits, because I haven't any. I hope in him who is virtue and sanctity himself. He alone, content with my frail efforts, will lift me up to himself, clothe me with his own merits, and make me a saint. Yeah, chat, guys, if you're still with me, drop something. Um, she wants to be a great saint, and she is certain she will be. This is during, remember, she's pinning this, obviously, before sainthood and before whatever else. She said she always desired to be great. And she said, you know, this may seem to be presumptuous to become a great saint, considering how imperfect I am. Um. Yet even so, I am daringly confident that one day I shall become a great saint. I'm not relying on my merits because I haven't any. I hope in him who is virtue and sanctity himself, itself. He alone, content with my frail efforts, will lift me up to himself, clothe me with his own merits, and make me a saint. I mean, just... Pfft. So, you know, I, and I think this is just another one of the reasons why St. Therese is just a straight-up doctor of the church. Like, she realizes... She, the duality here, I want to be a great saint. None of it's going to be my own merits or my own efforts. It's all going to be Christ. And because I completely trust in him, he will make me a great saint. It's just like the clearest and simplest way you could ever try and explain that. And that's why she's a doctor of the church is she so clearly and easily conveys this really deep truth and this deep mystery that the desire for greatness and the desire to be a saint is coupled with the fact that 
you are completely unable to be a saint without Christ. And if you are, if you, if you continue in that desire and you put forth your frail efforts, Christ will make you a great saint. And, um, and he's assured us of that with his graces. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could continue talking about Therese, you know, uh, it's, it's quite astounding. I think I'm going to wrap up pretty, pretty soon to there guys. If you have, uh, any more thoughts, stuff in chat, you can drop it there. I hope you've enjoyed going back to a little bit of theology. We haven't done theology in, in a long time, uh, on the podcast. I had just finished story of a soul and I thought that it was, it was brilliant obviously. And, um, you know, wanted to talk about that this time. Sorry, we've done so many on, on coronavirus, so, so many podcasts, geez. Um, we had some pretty good interviews with the president and vice president at Franciscan. So I was really, really pleased with those. Um, yeah, guys, thanks so much for, for joining us on Kellen and Alex show. Um, don't know what's in store yet for next week. Uh, if you guys really enjoyed the theology and want to see that again, drop it in chat. Um, we've, there's so many political stuff going on and there's so many, you know, crazy stuff, obviously with coronavirus, with, um, reopenings around the country. Um, Rona cast dude one slap I don't know if you've been uh watching um some of the recent ones but it's been all Rona cast me and Kellen actually had quite a disagreement as to the opening I've been saying I I think and I look I totally think if we were to look back on this maybe a two-week shutdown was justified but beyond that I think it's just absurd the fact that I think a lot of uh you know a lot of states California included where I am where Kellen is Still, so much is shut down. Um, it's really just destroying a lot of people. Obviously, everybody's minds are on that. Um, yeah, it's we'll definitely have Rona cast again. Hey, one slap. Have a good one, Tringus. Def want to uh, see more of this, but also really need game streams again. I don't know if I'm going to do many game streams again, one slap. Uh, sorry to say, but uh, if I do, it'll be a, a pleasant surprise. Um, maybe a Minecraft stream with Ignorant Lad again. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what goes on. Uh, Kellen and Alex show though, Thursday nights, 6 to 8 PM Pacific time. We'll definitely be doing that. Uh, one slap. It's always a blast. Good to see you, brother. Hope you're doing well. Mr. Rona, Rona madness, dude, Rona madness. Oh, you said you're in Texas. So Texas is actually opening quite a lot more. So that's, that's really good. I'm in Southern California. So it's, uh, it's taken us quite a while. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for stopping by the stream. One slap. Really appreciate it. Rona cast. We've done so many Rona cast. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like my thoughts are going to change too much. I mean, my thoughts have been changing the whole time. We've, when we first started covering coronavirus back in February, um, <laughs> we thought, you know, the projections and all the wild stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. That makes sense with Texas. Um, I guess it, it probably depends on where you are too. If you're in Dallas or if you're in Austin or if you're um, out in the country somewhere. Um, yeah, it's going to be different. I mean, we've had 2000 deaths in California and people are just like still going along with shutdowns and everything else. And although stuff seems to be opening up again, the thing I'm concerned about is not a, not even just a second wave. I'm just concerned about second shutdown. This really sets a really, really, really weird precedent for the future. Um, and then of course, you know, um, the faith, like having churches shut down and having public masses shut down, like I think it was absurd to go along with this um, originally just saying, oh, we're just going to shut down masses. There's going to be no masses. Everything's, I mean, I understand, but like it's still, it's, it sets a weird precedent. All of this sets a really weird precedent. The fact the government can shut down the entire economy all at once. 
the fact that everybody just went along with it. I understand the projections, everything else. The projections were wrong. Um, you know, and could the government lie to us and get us to, you know, like, yeah, there's so much. Kellen and I actually disagreed quite a bit last time on the shutdown. Uh, I think the government really shouldn't have this extensive power to just shut down the, the, the you know, economy, even in a pandemic. You know, they use it as a justifier to say, well, we're saving lives, whatever we're, we're making sure. But man, when we give government that type of power, they could invent a pandemic in a way, like invent it, make some numbers, whatever, or release a pandemic. Like this sets a weird precedent, man. There's just a lot of stuff that you really can't walk back once this stuff starts coming out. Um, yes, they could. And they probably did. Um, they could could shut down again. I, I think that's what you're referring to. Um, yeah, and they probably did. It just sets a weird precedent, man. I Now, look, I, maybe I'm in the minority. I think, um, obviously, Rona's bad and whatever else, but like, look, we've never had this in the history of whatever, shutting down the world for uh, a virus. Obviously, there's precautions we need to take, social distancing, whatever. I'm not against that, but um, saying to salons and saying to restaurants, people have to be able to decide the risk on their, on their own. And you can't just use the justifier that, well, if you make it more risky, then it's risky for everyone else. Like, I understand, but who's to decide who gets to determine the risk? The government? We're going to let the politicians and the elected officials determine the risk that we get to take, right? If you do business, if you live life, there's risk of death involved. Like, I drove to this office. There was a risk of death involved in me and me driving. Does the government have the authority to determine the risk I have of death? <laughs> I think if we give them that right, and then, then they can say, I can't drive to the office, or you know, if there's a risk of this, you can't do that. Who's to determine the risk of death? You know, and I understand pandemic, right? You have to think about everyone and stuff like that. But like it's a weird time, man. It's a weird time. One slab, it's crazy how people were happy with shutdown and some even asking for it. Crazy how fast it happened and how fast it could happen again. Great thoughts, man. That's that that's on the money. That's so weird, isn't it? How people were happy with the situation. <laughs> it's it's so true, man. How people were genuinely happy at the fact that like the whole world is just like, oh, it's shut down. Wow, we're so, you know, everyone, you know, the medical people are heroes. We're getting handouts. Um, and some were even asking for it. And you're seeing it now. People don't like want to come out of the kind of shutdown situation. Crazy how fast it happened and how fast it could happen again. I think you nailed it on that. People all of a sudden just bought into the whole thing, right? Like across the aisle, everyone did. And I, I okay, here's here's the part, here's kind of the, the reason why I think America bought into it completely is there was no external political struggle because Trump was behind the shutdown. And I think all the red states that also shut down um, pretty seriously and like the, the whole nation shutting down the, the 15 days to stop the spread that became 30 days to stop the spread. It's because the Trump administration was proactive and, and, and went ahead with it. And they were using numbers out of the UK, which said 2 million people dead. So like, it's understandable. Um, but everyone, you know, if Trump had come firmly out and said, I will open the economy in two weeks. And he did, if you remember, he came out and said, I want the country to be open by Easter. Easter is a great date. If he would have stuck with that, I mean, he would have been dead right. You know, and the U.S. would have been like the first case of like, because we're, we're finding out that the models that they're using, it doesn't make a difference if you shut down the economy or not. If you do social distancing, it makes a difference. 
But like shutting down the economy and shutting down businesses doesn't make a difference because people still have to go to the grocery store. They still have to like go outside. They're still going to encounter people. If you're in big cities like New York, you're still going to encounter people. If, if Trump had said Easter and then focused on that and said, we will open again by Easter, he would have been right because we now know that the models would have been the same. We wouldn't have had a, you know, an even more spike. Um, it would have followed a very similar curve if we had opened then and we didn't from a federal level. The states were allowed to make their own decisions. They prolonged, they prolonged, they prolonged, they prolonged. And I think that's the reason why people accepted this so much is the Trump administration was kind of the forerunners and the ones who were saying we're, we're allowing this. And I think um, the Democrats obviously were very, you know, they want shutdown. Like you're saying, they, they really want shutdown. Trump went along with that mentality because he was given these numbers that were astronomical. He, you know, being Trump and being a Republican, he, he said, I'm trying to open the economy by Easter. And then you got his doctors, Fauci and Burks, who were like, there's going to be a spike. There's going to be a spike. Everything's going to be ruined. You're going to ruin all our progress. And Trump's like, OK, fine, I'll, I'll push it back even more. He pushed it back. He gave it back to the states. And now we're seeing, you know, it's freaking almost June and people are, and states are still just trying to open up. Um, obviously, hindsight's 2020. You really get to, you know, you, you can see it now, but uh, that's the reason why I think people accepted it so quickly. And I think it's the reason why they're still kind of just going along with it. And uh, yeah, this sets a precedent how fast it could happen again. I think the way to save grace is say, doesn't matter the models. It doesn't matter how wild we think this is going to be. We're not shutting down the economy again. I think if people aren't inoculated to that fact, then they're not going to, you know, we're, we're the government could... We could see this happen again with another disease, or we could see this happen again with with some other related situation. Um, it's quite scary in that regard. Yep. So, anyways, that's that's the tail end of this theology, of the little flower. I, I've, you know, I'm still trying to form my opinion on on all of this. Um, obviously, we're going to be feeling the results of this for a long time, and I think this is this is really a determining you know factor of our age, in which we live is this pandemic and how the United States and the world recovers and um, what does this mean for government? What does this mean for society? Whatever else. And obviously my thoughts on this are are subject to change. So don't take my opinion too heavily because <laughs> I've already changed it quite a few times. I think when we were originally talking in February, I never was supportive of a full shutdown of the economy. I never said that, but I did. I was pretty bought into the numbers. I was like, yeah, these numbers are pretty insane. They're going to continue to be insane. Um, yeah, how fast it happens and how fast it could happen again. One slap, I think you're you're dead on uh, with regards to that. Any final thoughts, guys, um, before you listen to the best outro on Twitch? Um, actually, that goes to Summit. I, I prefer Summit's outro is pretty dope, but the best outro I can come up with on Twitch. Um, yeah, I mean, if we would have done, I'm, I'm really glad. I Guys, guys, highly recommend Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux. It's a very quick read. It's a very easy read. Um, I tore it up, man. I, I love this book so much. And uh, you can really tell why she's a doctor of the church. Um, St. Therese of Lisieux, late 1800s, Carmelite nun, doctor of the church. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show. We go live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. That's 9 to 11 p.m. for all you East Coast Tringuses. We go live at twitch.tv slash Tringus. 
We also release our podcast Friday morning on everywhere you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, you name it, we're on it. So thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.